Well, after a cold, rainy week and a cold morning, it is good to see you. You look pretty warm, which is good. I hope you've uh, come anticipating a great blessing as you meet with God and meet with God's people. It is good to be together. You may have noticed that second song that we sang. It's called, the, the worship team just called it, I Believe. It's a great song. Uh, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. Those words have actually been sung or actually recited for about 1,800 years at least. The words actually come directly from uh, the, the Nicene Creed, uh, a, a creed, a statement of belief that was created back in 325 A.D., so even I wasn't born back then. And, uh, but it's, it's great because it's a statement of faith by the people of God that has been recited and recited and stated uh, over and over around the world for many, many years. And you may think it's a new song because of the music. The music is new, but the words, they have rung out from the people of God over the centuries. And we are the people of God, right? The people of God called out from the world, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, being transformed by His Spirit, and journeying together to that great day when the reign of Christ fills the earth. We delight in being God's people. I am glad that you are here with us this morning, and we're going to spend some careful time considering the Scriptures and submitting to our God as we commit ourselves afresh to obeying His Word. But before we open the Word this morning, we want to uh, go to our Lord in prayer, acknowledge His greatness over us, confess our sins, and pray for the needs that we have represented here. So would you close your eyes and bow your heads and join me as we pray to our God together. Indeed, our Father, now as we quiet our hearts, we acknowledge that you, O God, are our God, and there is none like you. Father, Son, Spirit, three in one, we exalt you, for you are the exalted one. As Moses wrote so long ago, there is no rock like our rock. And indeed, we sense that in a world that is full of shaking and shifting, and uh, it causes us fear because we cannot understand even our own times, we, we delight in knowing that you are our God, a rock of steadiness in these days of unsteadiness. And we thank you. Father, we acknowledge that we are but dust. We are creatures while you are creator. We are finite and you are infinite. And Father, we, we claim our place as under you, created by you, and yet at the same time, amazing, in a most amazing fashion, you have chosen to put humans as the crowning work of your creation. And we delight in knowing, as the psalmist has said, what is man, that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him, you've crowned us with 
glory and honor and set everything under our feet. Indeed, we are, we are exalted above all of creation except for the angels, perhaps, and we are stirred by the fact that you give to us the privilege of being bearers of the image of our God. How we want to be like the Lord Jesus, the perfect image of God. And yet, Father, we know that even in this week, we have failed to do that very thing so often. While we want to follow him, there are times in our week where we have allowed our anger, our passions, the temptations from within and the pulls from outside of our hearts, all these things have, have so often caused us to stumble. And so we pray even this morning that you would forgive us. We know there are good things that we could have done this week, and yet in our selfishness we have chosen not to. Sometimes we have failed to say the word of encouragement that we could. We have, we have failed to do the good deed that you placed within our capacity, and Lord, we, we ask you to forgive us. And as we pray for your forgiveness, we are confident that because of the work of the Lord Jesus, you do forgive. And so we claim with great assurance that our sins are taken away, for you have promised that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we come to you as cleansed people this morning, and we thank you. Lord, we pray for our nation this morning in all of its difficulties with challenges uh, throughout our land. We know that you are God and you see the needs, you see what is before us. We thank you that the government that is has been ordained by you, and we ask that you would give to our governing authorities great wisdom. We pray for our Prime Minister, Abi. We pray for those in seats of government. Many of them will be taking new seats in, in coming days. Lord, we ask that you would bless them with a great uh, wisdom from heaven, that you would give to them a fear of God, and that you would give to us, your people, an ability to see your hand at work through our government, and we would submit to you as we even submit to them. Father, we have all come from families. Some are far, some are near. Some of us are parents of children. Some are children of parents. Some of us, Lord, are caring for people in our family who have great needs. And so this morning we ask that you would look upon us for those of us who are married, help us to be faithful. For those of us who are parents, help us to nurture our children. For those of us who care for elderly parents, Lord, help us to be sources of blessing and love for them. Would you bless our families, we pray. And now, O oh Lord, as we open your word, we confess it is your word, and we would ask that you would soften our hearts that we would not simply go through the motions of listening or even pretending to listen, but help us as we gather here to open our ears, to submit our hearts, that we might be more like our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Most of us have had the experience of 
buyer's remorse. You know, it's that feeling you get when you have, you've gone and you purchased something that you really liked, and, and then you get home, and after a few days, you begin to go, ah, that really wasn't worth the money I paid for it. Buyer's remorse. It can be with simple things, you know, like a, like a pair of tennis shoes or, or a nice shirt or, or some jeans. And you go to the store, perhaps, and you, you hunt and you look and you, you try to assess, is this a good pair of shoes? And you, you pick up the shoes and you, you kind of squeeze them and you poke them and you check, you check how they're made. Maybe you put the shoes on and you get to walk around and see how they fit and see how they feel. And maybe you dance a little bit. You go, hey, these are nice. I like them. You look at the, you look at them. Maybe you have a friend who says, hey, how do I look in my shoes or, or my jeans? Or do uh, you think this shirt would look nice? And you come home from the store all excited about your new purchase. And after a few days, well, the shoes start falling apart. <laughs> and that nice shirt begins to fade. And those jeans, well, they don't fit quite as well as you hoped. Buyer's remorse. Oh, I wish that I wouldn't have spent that money and invested in that. And you know, as the, as the cost of the items go up, our, our desire to get a good appraisal on what we're buying, that increases, right? We, we really want to make sure that our purchase is really worth our investment. Um, if you're ever buying a house, you want to find someone who can really inspect it for you. In the United States, this is a very common experience. In fact, we have people who um, specialize in inspecting houses. So before you put your hard-earned money or sign a contract on a mortgage, you have an individual go to the house and inspect it to appraise its value, to assess if it's worth all of your money. And this inspector will go around the outside of the house and look at the foundation, check the walls, look at the windows, examine the roof. The good inspectors will go inside your house and they, they check the floors for cracks and they look at the walls. They, they even turn on every light switch to see if they work. They'll check the garbage disposal and the sink and the toilets. They look at everything. Why? Because they want to make a very careful assessment an appraisal to make sure that your money gets spent wisely. You don't want buyer's remorse when you buy a house. If that's true for purchasing everything from shoes to shirts to houses, how much more when it comes to investing our lives in following Jesus? We certainly don't want buyer's remorse there. We want to make certain that we have assessed Jesus properly because he's calling us to invest not just a thousand butter or 500,000 butter or a million butter. He is calling us to invest our entire life in him and follow him. And we want to make certain that we have assessed the value properly. How do we properly assess Jesus? Let's narrow that down. How do we properly assess the work of Jesus? Let's narrow it down even some more. How do we properly assess 
the miraculous work of Jesus, so that when we see his miracles, what kind of value do they really have for us? We're going to answer that question this morning, and we're going to do so by looking at it, by first of all looking at a, an assessment that actually Jesus made himself so that we know exactly how to assess the value of his miracle work. And then we'll look at a response that Jesus wants from his people when they really understand what a proper assessment looks like. So the assessment and then a response. And in this text, Jesus is actually going to provide for us a miracle. A a miracle in which he heals someone, and everyone responds improperly. They come to an improper assessment of the miraculous work of Jesus. And then Jesus begins to explain to everyone, let me tell you how to value what I've done. So, These words were so encouraging when Luke wrote them to the New Testament church in the first century, and I think you'll find them encouraging for us as well today. So that first aspect of Jesus' work that we want to value to get a proper assessment is this, that Jesus invaded the earth not with Satan's kingdom, but with God's kingdom. Jesus invaded the earth not with Satan's kingdom, this is our assessment, but with God's kingdom. Let me show you. We're in Luke chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. This is our third Sunday where we're exploring some key passages in the life of Jesus between Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 12. And uh, we have been encouraged and challenged as we've looked at these texts. This morning we're in this rather unusual encounter of Jesus healing a mute man in Luke chapter 11. I want you to see with me how Jesus has indeed explained that he invaded earth, not with Satan's kingdom, but with God's kingdom. And we're breaking in this chapter at verses 14 through 16, first of all. Luke chapter 11, verse 14, follow along as I read. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left the man who had been mute, spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. We'll stop there just a second. Uh, People around Jesus improperly assessed this healing work, and they assess it as satanic. Um, The story is reported so quickly by Luke. It's like one sentence, right? If it was on the nightly news, it might go something like this. Uh, and, And now we interrupt our station to just tell you that Jesus healed some man who was mute, and he began to talk, and now for your weather report. That's it? Luke doesn't tell us anything else? Um, I can only imagine that, that this man would probably been sitting there for some time because the people probably over the weeks, months, years, we don't know how long, saw this man sitting on the side of the road so often and, and they knew he could not speak. 
Perhaps every time they went by, he tried to talk with them and, and uttered unintelligible sounds. And everyone knew he was mute. And then somehow Jesus came along and, and he healed him. That was it. We don't know how. And the man got up and spoke. We don't know what he said. Because the emphasis of the whole text is on the reaction of the people and Jesus' explanation. And the reaction of the people is that they were amazed. Oh, I'm sure they were, right? This is not the normal thing you see every day, a mute man having a demon cast out and, and beginning to speak. But to assess Jesus' work as simply amazing is not adequate. One cannot sit and simply say, oh, dinkano. That won't make a proper assessment of the work of Jesus. But others in the crowd, well, how did they respond? It says that some actually were hostile toward him. Did you, did you see what it said there? That, that this man who was mute had been healed and he spoke and what the people said was, this must be from Beelzebul. Now, that's a weird thing to say, right? Any of you name your kids Beelzebul? Probably not. Beelzebul is probably the name for the, the ruler of Baal in heaven. If you know your Old Testament, you know that in the, for the Canaanite gods were often pictured as idols called Baal or Baal. Sometimes we pronounce it that way. And they were all known to have a ruler in heaven. The ruler of Baal would have been known as, we think, as uh, Baalzebul. And so these people in the crowd are looking at this miracle from Jesus and saying, he's doing this by the power of Baalzebul. The ruler of the Baals, and Jesus will later equate that with Satan himself. So they're accusing Jesus of healing this man by the power of Satan. That's a bad assessment. And then some others come along and they say, Jesus, nice job, but give us a sign that this is really from heaven. Maybe another miracle would, would do it. Show us more proof that you actually are not from the kingdom of Satan. Bad assessment. And so Jesus counters all of this, and he is going to proclaim that his healing work is a sign not of the kingdom of Satan, but of the kingdom of God. And so he begins, first of all, by denying that he is from Satan. He gives two proofs. They're very quick. They're very logical. They make a lot of sense. And it kind of blows away the entire argument that he is from Satan. The proofs are given in verses 17 through 19. We come back to the text. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? It can't. I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? It's the second argument. So then they will be your judges. So two quick proofs that Jesus gives that he's not from the kingdom of Satan. The first one is a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
Uh, it's like this. Imagine I was building, a, I wanted to build a house. And so I hired two different people to build the house for me. And the first one, he is really good at, at putting up the walls. He, he puts up the studs. He hammers, he hammers the nails, makes it nice and strong, begins to work on the ceiling, on the roof. And he's putting the house up. Behind him is the second man that I hired, and he's an expert in tearing houses apart. So he comes along and he takes out all the nails. And then the, the, the studs fall down and the roof fall down. Now, it, they might work one month, they might work three months, they might work five years, but in the end, that house won't stand. Because a house that is divided, that where one is working against the other, cannot stand up. And Jesus says to this crowd, look, if I'm casting out demons, I'd be working against Satan. That doesn't work. The house would fall. Your logic is terrible. I can't be from Satan. Besides, proof number two, Jesus says, you have people casting out demons, and it must be that they're from Satan as well, or, or they're just going to be the judges of this whole situation. So he kind of knocks out their argument right at the legs. Right. But then he says the most important thing. He's there not just to say he's not from the kingdom of Satan, but that he has invaded earth with the kingdom of God. Notice how he says it in verse 20. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, by the power of God, by the hand of God, if it's clearly from God, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying he's brought a kingdom invasion by God's activity. Notice the word choice here, that the kingdom of God has come is where your NIV has it. In the Net Bible, I think they translate it even better, the kingdom of God has overtaken you. It's, it's jumped up on you. Uh, this is not saying the kingdom of God is close. He's not saying, oh, the kingdom of God is drawn near, but it's not quite here. He's not saying the kingdom of God is, is kind of on the horizon. You can see it coming. No, Jesus says, the kingdom of God has overtaken you. It has come upon you. Huh. In what sense is that true? I mean, he healed one man. Cast out one demon, it seems. But Jesus is saying something very important here about his role of bringing in the very kingdom of God. Uh, what is this kingdom? The kingdom of God. It means the, the rule of God upon the earth. It means the government of God over all of the earth. It's something that the people of God have, help, have hoped for since the very beginning of time. So that in Genesis 1, we have God coming and giving to human beings this wonderful command to, to rule the earth as image bearers of God, to represent God's rule upon the earth over the rest of creation. Unfortunately, the, the humans rebel against this, and, and the descendants of Adam and Eve are not able to display the very kingdom of God. And so, and so God raises up Israel, and he, and he calls Israel to be his special people to display this kingdom of God upon the earth. 
And he, he, he says that they will be for him a kingdom of priests, a, a holy nation. And so Israel receives from God the, the law that they can follow to show the kingdom of God and a land where they can have a temple to display the kingdom of God and, and kings that will help them under God be governed as the kingdom of God. And, and Israel doesn't do so well. They end up in exile, and the kingdom of God is not going forward, so it seems, on the earth. And so there begins... 400 years of hope that what God desired for his people to display his kingdom, the hope would be that one day that kingdom would begin to show upon the earth and be displayed here. And now Jesus comes and he heals a man who could not speak. And when a mute is healed in the Old Testament, it's almost always connected with someone who shouts for joy with the coming of the Messiah to advance the kingdom. And Jesus says, if I cast out a demon by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has overtaken you. This is the hope of the ages that Jesus says should be considered the assessment of his value. His miraculous healing of this mute man demonstrates a value that is unsurpassed. Unlike other, any other, he invades earth with the kingdom of God. May I suggest to you that any proper assessment of the miraculous work of Jesus begins here. It must include the recognition that he is the one who has invaded earth to bring the kingdom of God here. Most of us this morning sitting in this room probably will not assess the work of Jesus as satanic. I don't expect many of us to be wrestling with whether or not Jesus' work is from the kingdom of Satan. Yet we can still improve our assessment of the miraculous work of Jesus. I, I fear too often we might look at a text like this and say, oh, um, you know, Jesus did miraculous signs, and I sure wish he would bring such miraculous signs into my life. And, and I wish I had a church that had more healings and, and, and casting out demons so that we could see the work of God here. We, we, so we spend our time perhaps looking for, for more miracles and healings and signs, which, which is just like the people in the crowd who said, give us more signs. We may be tempted to manufacture them or find another church or go to a healer. And in a sense, we've devalued the miraculous work of Jesus because we want something more. My friends, such would be an improper assessment of the work of Jesus. This text does not teach us to perform or pursue healings like Jesus did. Instead, Jesus is saying to us, assess my work properly. My work tells you I have invaded the earth with the kingdom of God. From beginning to end, Jesus centers 
his work on this. We may unintentionally undervalue the work of Jesus. We must recognize that Jesus is not simply the initiator of a movement called Christianity. He is that, but not simply that. We we must recognize that he's not simply a good teacher or a moral example who shows us what is right and wrong. He's not only the redeemer from our sins, a a sacrificial lamb to, to pay for our guilt. He's not just a mediator between God and man, although he is all these things. He's not just a comforter for our souls and a recipient of our prayers. He's he's not just the one who takes us to heaven and so we can escape the wickedness of earth. He's not even just the sum of all these things. But when Jesus declares for himself his assessment, he says this, I have invaded the earth with the kingdom of God. And it is this that must grip our minds and our attention. The rule of God, the rule of God upon the earth is something that Jesus brings. It's something that he creates. We don't make it happen. We can't bring it by our legislation. We can't establish the kingdom of God by our marches or protests or preaching or teaching, and and we can't vote it into existence. Jesus didn't surrender the the creation of the kingdom to a church or parachurch organization or a mission agency or, or to a nation. Jesus is the one himself who brings the kingdom of God, and he has demonstrated it. And so we pray, your kingdom come, Lord Jesus. So we're working on a proper assessment of the miraculous work of Jesus, and I suggested to you there are three aspects in this text. We've seen the first, this kind of central aspect that that Jesus himself has to be valued, to be assessed as the one who who has invaded the earth with the kingdom of God. There's a second aspect, very important in this text, and it is this, that, that Jesus has overthrown Satan to gather his people. Jesus has overthrown Satan. He has overcome him in order to gather his people. And we see this in verses 21 and 22. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 11, verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Huh? (laughs) It's kind of obscure. What exactly is going on here? I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is talking about overthrowing Satan and gathering his people. And the way we know that is because of the word choice. He talks about plunder and gathering. Did you see it? Verse 22, he's going into a strong man's house and getting the plunder out. You know what plunder is? That's the, that's the, the riches of war. It's what, you, it's what the, conquering, uh, the conquering army will get from the warriors they conquered. 
And he's talking about gathering. What on earth is Jesus talking about? Well, you've heard me say it before. If you want to understand the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament. And Jesus seems to be citing a great text from Isaiah 49. And in Isaiah 49, the prophet is looking at the people of God being taken away into exile. And they are, they are being held prisoner by, by nations that do not want to let them go. They are called warriors. And, and these nations, such as Assyria and Babylon and later Medo-Persia, are all going to be people who hold on to the people of God and oppress them. And what God says in chapter 49 of Isaiah is, my servant is going to come and fight for his people. Keep your finger in Luke 11. You're, you're good Bible students. Let's, let's go back to Isaiah. I want to show you these great texts because this is what Jesus is talking about, but he shifts the meaning from nations to Satan. We're in Isaiah chapter 49, and I want you to look with me at, the la- at several little verses. We won't read the whole text, of course, but remember the word plunder, how Jesus talked about getting the plunder Look at chapter 49, uh, verses 24 and 25. The Lord is speaking about his prophet and what's going to happen. And he says in verse 24 through the prophet, Can plunder be taken from warriors? Or captives be rescued from the fierce? And the answer is in Isaiah's day was, well, maybe not. Because the warriors are fierce and they hold our people. But... This is what the Lord says, verse 25. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. God is saying, I'm going to send my servant to rescue you out from these mighty warrior nations. And Jesus is going to change that to say the greatest warrior against God's people, it's not Assyria or Babylon, or Medo-Persia, it's Satan and the kingdom of Satan. And then, just to add how God is going to gather his people, notice what he says in verses 5 and 6. We back up to the earlier in this chapter where where the Lord says, verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, the servant of the Lord, to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel to himself. There's the gather idea. I'm going to gather my people back, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You you get this. God is saying of his servant, I'm going to make you so powerful that you'll not just rescue my people, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles so that the whole world will be gathered as my people when the servant of the Lord comes. A little bit later in this text, he describes the coming back of God's people as having babies on the back, daughters on the hip, as the foreign nations bring back the children of Israel to their God and to their land. 
And God says, Jesus says, I'm the one who is basically plundering the kingdom of Satan in order to gather my people, God's people. Wow. You see, he is at work overthrowing Satan and gathering his people. My friends, the work of Jesus is not primarily political. It's spiritual. It's not primarily trying to reform our nations and improve our laws. It is spiritual work in the kingdom of the spirit world. The work of Jesus is not primarily social, attempting to get people to live better and have justice everywhere. It's good it happens. The work of Jesus is not primarily humanitarian, making life better for everyone. Now, his work has implications for political and social and humanitarian issues, but his work is fundamentally at its core spiritual, dealing with the kingdom of Satan and, and, that, and the overthrow of the evil one and his demons. And so for us, this is a call to faith, a call to believe that which we cannot see. It's not a call to duplicate everywhere the miraculous healings and exorcisms of Jesus. It's not a call for us to search out a church where there will be, always be a chorus of, Bayesusim. It is a call for us to believe, to believe that this Jesus who cast out a demon has come to overthrow Satan completely and gather his people to himself. And that belief, that faith is difficult. We will not read about the kingdom of God advancing against the kingdom of Satan. We won't read about that in Time Magazine or Newsweek. We won't hear of Jesus' spiritual conquest on CNN or, or BBC or Al Jazeera or any other news outlet. They won't publish it. We, we probably can't go to the university and get college credit for studying the miraculous works of Jesus and how they defeat the, the kingdom of Satan. But this is reality. This is what Jesus has done and is doing. And this is how we properly assess his work. When we see Jesus, we see the one who has invaded earth with the kingdom of God to overthrow Satan and gather his people. Amazing. We're trying to come up with a proper assessment of the miraculous works of Jesus. I've suggested to you a couple of aspects, the aspects of his invading with the kingdom and, and overthrowing Satan to, to collect his people, to gather his people. There's a third aspect here, and it is in verses 24 to 26 where Jesus essentially says that those he gathers, he protects. He protects them from demonic assault. 
that would otherwise cause great harm. He actually makes the point in the negative, so we'll take the negative and we'll flip it around to make sure we understand what he's saying for us in the positive. We're in verses 24 through 26. Jesus says, got to turn the page. Jesus says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house that I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the the final condition for the person is worse than the first. What Jesus is saying, using a negative example, is that, that, that he protects his people from wicked, demonic assault. You see, he starts off by likening this, this cleansing of a, uh, of a person to a house that gets cleaned, and, and the, the evil spirit is cast out, but evil spirits need some place to settle. And so he's looking for a place to settle, and finally he realizes that that, that house that I left, it's, it's just vacant. So he comes, and he says the second time he comes, he brings, he brings his army of seven other demons, probably a, a, a figure of speech about having a full force. Now the demonic assault will be at full strength as they enter the house, enter the person who, who was perhaps had some experience with Jesus, but has no ongoing relationship. Because unless the strong man stays, the person is vulnerable to additional demonic attack. But for us, what does that mean? Those of us who have the strong man, Jesus, the one who's ever thrown Satan, for those of us who have him with us and our lives are aligned with him, he stays and he protects so that the assault of the demons can do nothing. We have indeed the strong man who says, I will protect the house from any additional attack. A full assessment of Jesus is one that says not only has he come with the kingdom of God, not only does he overthrow Satan and gather his people, but he protects his people from ongoing demonic attack. Martin Luther had it right so many centuries ago. When he wrote these words in a great hymn, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Satan is strong, but the stronger one resides with us. And so we are confident that we are protected by our Lord Jesus. My friend, if we want to assess the work of Jesus, we do so in this way, that he has invaded earth with the kingdom of God, 
to overthrow Satan and gather his people and then protect those who are his from ongoing demonic assault. He's so valuable. No buyer's remorse here. And Jesus would invite the people of his day to respond, I think, in this way. We get a hint of it in the text. We'll say it this way, to align your life with this Jesus, to align our lives with Jesus' kingdom invasion, to to line up in the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we, we move about our life in a way that is consistent with the kingdom invasion by the Lord Jesus. He, he hints at it in this text when he said there in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, Jesus is saying, I, I want you to join me in the gathering of God's people. What a privilege to join Jesus in this gathering of God's people. And this is, this is Luke's concern As he continues on, not only writing this gospel, but the book of Acts. And the book of Acts will demonstrate how God's people over and over were gathering people from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth because of the invasion of King Jesus and his kingdom. This gathering, according to this text, is going to be through our own obedience to him. For Jesus kind of gets interrupted in the last couple of verses by a woman who says, Blessed is the one who gave birth to you. And and Jesus turns to her and says, Blessed really is the one who hears my word and obeys it. It's not a genealogical, biological link to Jesus that brings blessing. It is, in fact, the obedience to him and to his word about his kingdom. For you see, this has been Luke's emphasis for many chapters as he's told us that the one who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears the word of God and obeys it and withstands the storm. The seed that finds good soil, that's the one who hears the word of God and obeys. In chapter 8, Luke will look out over the crowd and he's asked, he he says, here are my mothers and brothers and sisters, the ones who hear my word and obey it. And now Jesus says in this great text, It's the one who hears my word and obeys who is blessed with this kingdom relationship. And may I suggest to you that it is in our obedience to the word of God that we gather. It is because we obey him, we love him, we love people. What we do, what he says, it it is attractive to a world that so needs to see the kingdom of God. So we respond by joining him. I know that in the near future, I'm probably going to buy some more things. And maybe even the house that I bought will one day make me look and go, ah, I think I spent too much money on that. I may experience some buyer's remorse. But my friends, I will never have buyer's remorse for investing my life in Jesus. For he is the one who has invaded this earth with God's kingdom to overthrow Satan and and gather God's people and protect us from demonic assault 
until the final day of his kingdom. And so, our Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would grow our faith. Help us to assess the work of Jesus with all the wonderful value that it has. Indeed, it is a value we cannot even measure. Draw us to yourself. Through the Lord Jesus and His Spirit, we pray. Amen.